Welcome to Practical Christian Living. The day is coming when He will return, even as He promised that He would. It'll happen. As sure as Christmas comes for a child, it will happen for us. Christmas seems like a long ways off to kids sometimes. It will happen. One day you and I will be standing in a crowd of thousands upon ten thousands before the throne of God and we'll say, it happened. God is a God who keeps His promises. 2 Peter chapter 3 is a great encouragement that although Jesus has not come back yet, oh, the time is near and getting closer. His words will be fulfilled. Those words are in John 14, 3, and they read, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Please stay with us for this edition of Practical Christian Living. We're in 2 Peter 3, 9 through 18. Here's Robert Furrow. Father, we want to thank you as we consider the project, um, the It Is Well project, and being able to bring water into this community and actually make a difference in the lives of these women, children, and these men as well. And Lord, we pray that you would open up the doors for us to be able to share the gospel there. And that not only would these people receive water that would transform and change their daily lives, but they would receive you, the living water, that would transform and change their hearts. We pray that the gospel would take root there and that if you tarry, generations would be affected by the love that we have had in reaching out towards these people in really wanting to see a difference in their lives. We also pray that you would bless our time here in the word, that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us, that we would be drawn uh, to you deeper by what we find here in 2 Peter. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If we were to take the theme of 2 Peter and, and, and boil it down to one phrase to what he's writing about, it would be false teachers. If we were to put into a sentence, we would say, beware of false teachers. That's exactly what this book is all about. In the beginning, he starts off with chapter one, talking about making sure that you've got the right character and then that you stay true to the word of God which he says, Peter is writing this, right? Peter, who was one of the apostles who walked with Jesus. And he says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we brought to you the truth, but we have the more sure word of prophecy. And then he says that the word of God is not a matter of one's own interpretation, but that each man spoke and wrote as they were moved by God. In other words, I don't have the option to approach the Bible and say, I want to figure out what this is saying to me. I've got to find out what God meant when he spoke it and how it applies to my life. I don't have the option and neither do you to say, well, this is the way I interpret this passage or this is the way I interpret it. This is the way you interpret it. This is the way I interpret it. Our goal isn't to find out how we interpret it or how we want to interpret it, but our goal is to find out what God meant when he said it so that we can trust in the power of the word of God. If I have the wrong interpretation, there's no power in that. If I find out what God meant when he said it and why he said it, then there is power in God's word because it's what he said. And he stands behind his word. It's alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It will not fade away. Chapter two, that's chapter one. 
So chapter one, he gets us rooted in the word of God, that this is not a matter of our own interpretation, but it's discovering what God did and meant when he moved upon the heart of the men who wrote the Bible for us. Chapter two is warnings to false teachers, the whole chapter. And Peter gets fired up in chapter two. At one point, he says, reserved for these false teachers is the darkest darkness and their judgment is not slumbering. It's already on its way. He's saying, for those of you who are false teachers, beware because your judgment is on its way. And he spoke about the covetous heart of the false teacher, why they would teach false things and how they exploit people for their own desires and their own purposes and gives a warning that if you're a false teacher, these things are coming to you. And it would be enough that if you are a false teacher and somehow you're here tonight or you're hearing this, that you would know, man, I need to change. I really need to change it. In chapter three, he turns now to what I believe is the topic of the false teachers. And that is the second coming of Jesus. Oftentimes, because prophecy is so powerful and can be so moving, it has been the heart of false teaching. Whether you go back to the Jehovah Witnesses and their foundation, much of it was around the return of the Lord. They set a date for the return of Jesus. And there was a, there was a, a lot of excitement that was generated because of that. Or you go back to the Latter-day Saints and what they believe about the return of Jesus. And you look at what they said in the beginning of what they did. False, false teachers often will talk about the return of Christ, but they misquote it. They change it. They twist it. And Peter turns to this topic, I believe, because they were doing that. And I want to pick it up in verse 9. He says that in the, in the early part of this chapter, he says that in the last days, scoffers are going to arise who are going to say, where is the promise of his coming? They're going to say, Jesus hasn't returned yet. And where is he? We talked last week about the fact that when there are scoffers today who scoff us for believing that Jesus could come back at any moment, that they are signs for the last days. The scoffers themselves who are scoffing the coming of Christ become signs that Jesus is going to come back again. And then by the time we get to verse nine, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What promise would that be? Jesus said in John 14, one, I'm coming back. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. And if I go away, I'm coming back and I will receive you to myself that where I am there, you might be also. He says, God's not slack concerning his promise. He will come back. The day is coming when Jesus Christ will come through the clouds in all of his glory. The first time he laid his glory aside and he came as a man. He came just like you to represent you. He had laid all of his power and all of his glory aside. Everything that he did on the earth, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit that worked in him. He laid it all aside. But the day is coming when he will return, even as he promised that he would. It'll happen. As sure as Christmas comes for a child, it will happen for us. Christmas seems like a long ways off to kids sometimes. It will happen. One day you and I will be standing in a crowd of thousands upon ten thousands before the throne of God and we'll say, it happened. I can't believe it happened. It says, but the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why has Jesus waited so long before he returned? Why has it been so long since Jesus gave the promise that he would come back? Because he desires that all would be saved and that all would come to repentance. 
And if he is waiting in order for people to get saved, if he had come back before 1974, I would not be with Christ because I came to Christ in 1974. There are some of you guys that came to Jesus last year and you would not be here had he come back before. And you can be glad he didn't come back. He is long suffering because he desires that none would perish and that all would come to repentance. And if that is the reason that God is waiting, if that's the reason that he hasn't come back yet, then you and I ought to be about that business. We are the light and we are the salt and we ought to be about the business of sharing Christ with people around us, praying that we would be lights to our friends, our families. Oftentimes we feel like, boy, I need to go out and share the gospel with people on the street. I don't know if that would be as effective as living your life for Christ, living your life around the people that you are around every day, your coworkers, your family, your friends, and your acquaintances. And if you shine for those people and the person next to you shines for those people and the person next to you shines for those people, I bet that we would represent almost the entire, not only us, but the church in general that's called by him to be salt and light, that we would represent the entire city. I think there wouldn't be a person in this city that wouldn't be under the influence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers if we just say, I'm going to live my life for Christ. I'm going to, first of all, live for the people that are around me now. And when God opens up doors for me to share with somebody on, a, on an airplane or I get to go out and street witness, so be it. But first of all, I'm going to live for him. If that's the reason that he's waiting, then we want to be about that. And then it says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The day will come, Jesus said, that that day will come. It will be just like in the days of Noah. Men will be, be marrying and giving in marriage. The days of Noah were incredibly violent days. It's one of the reasons God judged the world during the days of Noah. And so our days are extremely violent days. But that's not the only thing he's saying. He's saying it's going to be a day like any other day. We're going to wake up in the morning and some people are going to have their wedding day on that day. When we think about the return of Jesus, we think, oh, it can't be. It can't be yet. There's no black smoke and helicopters. We often have that very apocalyptic view of his return, but it's going to be like any other day. It'll be like today and it will come as a thief in the night to some. Jesus said, had you known what time the thief would break in, you'd have waited up for him. But since you don't know, you have to be ready. You and I need to be ready because he comes as a thief in the night. And then he says, what's going to happen after he returns is... Um, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Everything that is here now will one day be burned up. The only thing that is eternal is God and people. That's it. So if everything else is going to be burned up, then why are we living for, for stuff? Why are we living for cars? Why are we living for houses? Why are we living for things? That's what he goes on to say. He says in verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Two things, character and conduct. In holy conduct, the way that you live and godliness. Godliness is your character. And the character that God works out in us is being like God, being like Jesus. What we know about God is that he's loving and tender and gracious and kind and forgiving. And you and I need to be loving and tender and gracious and kind and forgiving. You and I need to love righteousness because he is righteous. And our conduct, when we live knowing that Jesus could come back in any moment and our conduct is the way that it's supposed to be, 
and our character. He then says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Now we understand looking for. The Bible says that we need to watch and we need to wait. And I do have a question. Are you watching? Are you waiting for the return of Jesus? I think we shouldn't see a sunset that we don't think that one day Jesus is going to come back on the clouds. That we should be waiting and looking for the return of our Savior. But it says something else here that's interesting. It says looking for, we understand that, we're to be looking for Jesus. Jesus said, when you see these things start to take place, look up, for your redemption draws nigh. But hastening the day of the Lord. What does it mean for you and me to hasten the day of the Lord? And how can we hasten it? Isn't the day of the Lord set? Jesus said, no one knows the, the day of the, the return of the Son of Man, not the angels in heaven and not the Son of Man himself, but the Father only. Isn't that an interesting verse? How is it that Jesus didn't know the day he was going to return? Because again, Jesus came in a human form. When he came here, he set his glory aside. And even though he could have accessed it, he could have known what day he would come back. He didn't because he was just like us to face the things on earth the way that we face them. In his glory now, he knows when he's going to come back. But when he was here, he didn't know when he was going to come back. But it says in Matthew 24 that the days were shortened. Remember, Matthew 24 is about the return of the Lord. The days were shortened because if they weren't, no flesh would remain upon the earth. In other words, God wanted to have the return of Christ be even further back. But because man would destroy himself, God had to move up the day. He had to change the day because no flesh would remain upon the earth. What does that tell us about ourselves, by the way? When we think of the return of the Lord, when we think about him coming upon this earth to bring judgment, when the, we read it last week, when the court is set, and the books are opened. Often people don't like judgment. They don't like the thought of Jesus coming and stopping things here upon the earth. But you realize that he moved that day up because if not, man would completely destroy himself. No flesh would remain upon the earth. I don't know what men would do. If it would be a, a nuclear exchange or if it would be some kind of biochemical kind of a thing, but something's gonna happen. Or whether it would be the destruction of the earth, something's gonna happen. If Jesus didn't come back early, if he didn't move that date up, and then it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a moving target, but hastening the day of the Lord, that there's something that we can do. And I think this is a bit mysterious. Oh, don't, no mistake. Theologians will tell you exactly what they think about this. I've been listening to a podcast lately on theology, and I'm amazed at all of the different things that theologians will get involved in. You know, as a church or a fellowship of churches or a denomination, you get accused of putting Jesus in a box. And we often will do that. The way Jesus works in our midst, the what he does among us, we say, that's the way Jesus moves. He moves this way. We put him in a box. Theologians put Jesus into a Rubik's cube and they constantly are working it. So they'll go over one text and they'll get it figured out for that text. But then they created all kinds of problems for them down the road. And then they draw darker and darker lines with their theology. To some degree, there is a mystery in the scriptures. It is it's mysterious. And Paul talks about it. He says that now we see in a mirror dimly. Think about mirrors in their day. They could polish up metal mirrors, bronze mirrors until you could get a good reflection, but they get dull over time. And over time, you know, just the way we are. Some of you guys are so meticulous that you would polish your mirror every day. 
Then there's us that would go until we couldn't see ourselves anymore. <laughs> and then we finally get out the stuff and, and we would polish it. And he says that we see in a mirror dimly. It's like a mirror that doesn't really reflect well anymore. We don't really see the future all that clearly. There's mysteries and there's mysterious things in the scripture. And to some degree, I think it's meant to be that way. There's supposed to be mystery about the future. There's supposed to be mystery about heaven and about eternity. We're supposed to look ahead and go, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I can't wait. There's supposed to be that. So there's some mystery here. How do we hasten the day of the Lord? How do we, as the people of God involved in the work of God, hasten the day of the Lord? Well, we know that this is right in the middle of a section talking about the work of the gospel, talking about God wanting people to be saved and not wanting people to perish. In other words, the Lord has established for us to be a part of evangelism and that when evangelism reaches its place where it is successful and the day of the Gentiles are done, then Jesus is going to come back. So that day is established by God as a day that a certain work is done. And we as the church are part of that work. The question is, how are we doing it? Now, does that mean that God doesn't know the exact day that he's going to return? Certainly he knows because he knows all things and he knows the future. But somehow, and again here mysteriously, somehow we're involved in it because we're doing the work of the gospel. So people have pointed out that the person who is the last person to get saved before Jesus returns might be right here in this room. And we would say to you, get saved already. Give your life to Christ so that Jesus Christ could return even right now. So there's some mysterious way in which you and I are involved in the church and can hasten the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the, excuse me, in verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner? Actually, verse 12, looking for and hastening, there we are, the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell, dwells. You ever feel like you don't belong here? You ever watch the news and think about the evil in the world? I, I don't watch the news much every few days. But whenever I do, I think, wow, this world is getting darker and darker. And it sure does sound like the last days to me. But there is a new heaven and a new earth and righteousness lives there. Peace lives there. The glory of God lives there. The King of Kings lives there. And that's what we look forward to. This is not our home. We aren't citizens of this earth, but we're citizens of heaven. And we look to that new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. Because we're looking to that new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blameless. Therefore, you, because we're looking ahead to those things, be diligent to be found by him spotless. When the day that he returns and he finds you, that you would have everything right between you and him. Notice that it says three things here. First of all, that you be found by him in peace. Now, this might very well mean peace with God, that you have made peace with him and that when he finds you, you have peace with him. But I think it says something else too. And that is the greatest call that we have is to the people that are around us. I believe the most important thing we do is the way we treat people. A lot of times we can draw religious lines and things that we should be doing and not doing. But the most important things that we do is the way we treat people. 
The Bible says the mercy you give is the mercy that you're going to receive. <laughs> I have a question. Do you need mercy? Then you ought to be the most merciful person out there. The Bible says in the manner you judge is the manner God's going to judge you. If you judge people harshly, God says, I'll judge you that way. Jesus said, if you don't forgive people, you yourself will not be forgiven. The very way we treat people, which ought to be a scary thing to us if we're mistreating people. And when we're found by him, we want to be at peace. And the Bible says, be at peace with all men as much as it concerns you. That is, you try as hard as you can to be at peace with all men. There, there's some people who are not happy with me, but I need to try to be at peace with them as much as I can. And then I kind of just got to put it in God's hands. I just got to kind of say, all right, well, you know, Lord, I've done what I can do. Be at peace with all men as much as it concerns you. So he says, be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot or blemish. How is it that you can be found by Jesus when he returns for you without spot or blemish? That horrible thought that you might be sinning when Jesus returns, that would be a horrible thing, wouldn't it? There's an old song. It was in the 70s. It was a Christian song about a guy that was sinning when Jesus came back. And he says, he's in the middle of this sin. I think he was having an affair in the song. He's in the middle of the sin. And he hears this explosion that rocks the room and turns the morning into night. And he says, and I ran out into the street and there was a hot wind blowing. And I looked up in the heavens and the saddest eyes were looking right at me. The idea that Jesus would come back when you're in the midst of this sin. Being without spot and blemish is simply having everything right between you and Jesus. Having everything right, keeping short accounts with God, that right now your sins are forgiven because you've asked him to forgive your sins. The Bible says in 1 John that if you say you have no sin, that you're a liar. So there's nobody here who can say, oh, I don't have any sin in my life. But it also says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, 1 John chapter 1, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All it means is that you have a right relationship with God, that you say, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. And God's ready to forgive. God's ready to forgive your sins, the Bible tells us. And I love that. He's ready to forgive. When you were a kid, were your parents always ready to forgive? You had to kind of work them into it, didn't you? You had to get them to come around because they weren't ready to forgive. But the Bible says that God is ready to forgive. He loves you and he's ready to forgive you. What an awesome thing. So that we would be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. Then verse 15, and consider that the long suffering of the Lord is salvation. Again, we're back to the work that we're supposed to do. The long suffering of the Lord is salvation. That's why he's waiting. So you and I can do the work that we're called to do. And also our beloved brother, Paul. Now, Peter brings up Paul. And Mary was earlier in the book of Matthew, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, and here we have a contrast of two people that were used by God. And I don't know that there could be a greater contrast between people than Peter and Paul. History tells us that Peter was a big man. I don't know exactly what a big man means. I don't know if he was 6'3", 6 6'4", 6 and 220, or if he was 5'10", and 350. But he's a big guy, whatever big guy means. And Paul, history tells us, was a short guy. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you. And His Word is life-changing. 
If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.